This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Cornell Morton of the Diversity Coalition of San Luis Obispo County. Black history is American history. Asian American history is American history. Indigenous people's history is American history. We perhaps do ourselves a disservice by separating out these months as if we should only celebrate those experiences during 28 days in February. Also, we'll take a look into those produce boxes that get delivered to your doorstep. That's the produce business. Everything happens kind of at the last minute with fresh vegetables. (laughs) These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, February 27th, 2023. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with honeybees. They're essential pollinators for our local and global food supply, and of course, they also produce honey. Jeremy Rose teaches beekeeping at Cal Poly, and contributor Beth Thornton joined him on campus to check on the bees. We went out to look at a honeybee box and learn more about these pollinators. Honeybees don't just make honey, they also pollinate about one-third of the food we eat. Rose teaches the students about caring for the hives, checking for health issues, and making honey. So we've been doing a 200 level class called Special Problems, Um, kind of teaching. I think we have five students, and we're just teaching how to bring the beehives through the winter. Bees? So how many bees would be in this bee box? Is that what you call it? Yeah, so they're called beehive or bee box, or you can refer to it as a colony. Um, This one consists of two deep brood boxes. So it's actually one box stacked on top of the other, and they're actually modular. So as the population of the hive grows, you can actually add more boxes to it to give the bees space. Uh, During the winter season, generally we try to have it a little bit smaller, just so that there is less air space inside that the bees need to keep warm. They actually maintain an internal uh, brood nest temperature around 93 to 96 degrees Fahrenheit. So the less empty space they have to uh, maintain in there, the better for them going through the winter Mm -hmm. and then now as we get into the spring season like today i think we had about 75 degrees fahrenheit outside today so they'll be starting to get back into springtime mode and the uh, actual worker bee population of the hives will increase from here on out through the spring season give me an idea of what that population is um without actually popping the boxes which i'm not going to do right now (laughs) I'm just judging by the number of foragers going into the hive, and I'd say that this is probably a, uh, probably a six to ten frame hive. Um, each box actually holds ten honeybee frames, which are wooden frames with a honeycomb in there. Um, and for beekeeping, we count frames of bees to estimate the population. So a frame typically covered with bees walking on the surface would be around... Uh, probably probably between 1,500 and 3,000 bees wow. approximately. So there's quite a few bees in there. That, there can be upwards of 10 to 20 to 30,000 bees in a wintering colony. And that's then in, a lot more than I expected. Packed yeah, in there. <laughs> yeah. And it, that, that's kind of what they have to do. They all work together as a unit. So the closer they are, the worker bees are able to communicate with one another 
and maintain the hive. So they're generally, uh, the bees are right up against each other. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a cluster. We'll often refer to it as the honeybee cluster. So if we were to open those boxes, um, we would actually see kind of a, a round or oval cluster of bees that would actually be uh, centered in those boxes. Do you think that they're making noise over there? Uh, yeah, Are we could hearing? go. Yeah, we, we'd have to go right up to it. So if you put the microphone right up to where the foragers are coming in on the left right there, uh -huh. we'd be able to hear them. And I can go do that if you want me to. Uh, that would be great. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's recording. Yeah, they're very gentle. They I'm were amazed. totally ignoring me. Then. <laughs> they must and, know uh, you. So actually, these ones don't know me because the bees only live about. Oh, they live a little longer in the winter time, but in the active season, they only live like six weeks. So, and yeah. so they're not. It's not the same bees coming back to the same hive. Uh, it is the same ones, but they have a short lifespan. So they come and go from the same hive, but the queen bee is actually continually laying eggs to regenerate the worker bee population as it naturally declines. So it's the queen bee that um, is the mother of all of the worker bees. Mm -hmm. So if the worker bees are wearing themselves out, say they're just working hard every day, bringing in honey, um, bringing in pollen, uh, they'll just naturally die off maybe in five to six to seven weeks. And the queen bee lays eggs during that time. And so the new young re, re, um, Replenish. replenishes the population, yeah. If you had two of these side by side and you had two different queens, would the worker bees know which box to go in? They do know which box. So typically we actually have these hives on a pallet. And so there will be four hives on a pallet. And the bees will go back to their hive even though the other one is only inches away. And how do they know that? Um, they know in several ways, one of which is the visual orientation of the hive um, in the landscape. So when the bee flies for its first time, it actually does an orientation flight where it circles the area. And during that time, she takes in the landmarks and actually in a way memorizes where the entrance to her hive is. Um, so they will do that even if another hive is inches away, they will learn which one is theirs. Um, the other way is that each hive has a different smell to it. And part of the smell is pheromones generated by the individual queen bee. So individual queens will have a slightly different um, pheromone mm -hmm. that their daughters will recognize. So uh, generally the bees will go into their hive because it has their queen. And if they do go into the wrong one, oftentimes they'll fight. This is Beth Thornton. I'm at Cal Poly with Jeremy Rose, learning about honeybees and beekeeping. And the queen bees just stay? The queen bee stays put um, with a couple of exceptions. So yeah, it's true. Almost all of the queen's life is spent within the hive laying eggs. Um, the exceptions to that are, uh, number one, at the beginning of her life, within the first two to three weeks, she actually goes on a mating flight. So she leaves the hive and she mates with drones, which are the males from other hives in the general vicinity. Um, and after that, she's fertile. So she comes back to her hive and she remains fertile for the rest of her life, which could be two years mm -hmm. or more sometimes. 
Um, and so the only other exception to uh, her staying in the hive is if the colony swarms. So the swarming is the colony level reproduction. So in that case, a hive will split and the queen bee will fly away with many of the workers to start a new hive somewhere, maybe in a hollow tree or in an empty bee box, something like that. So that typically happens in April. And that's the only other time the queen will leave the colony. When you're tending the bees, are you, do you see the queen? Mm-hmm. Not every time, but we keep an eye out for her. And you can recognize her. We can, yeah. Her body shape is different. Um, she has more of an elongated look to her and a slightly larger thorax, which is the middle section. And she's usually in the middle, too, so usually we can look right in the middle and she'll be hanging out right in there. Sometimes there will be a retinue of about eight to 12 worker bees that will be facing her. So that makes it even easier to spot her because there will be kind of an oval of bees all with their heads pointed inwards. So then you know to look in there and usually the queen will be right there. You lifted it up? Yeah, so one way that I like to check on the status of a beehive without actually disturbing them at all. So I don't open it, I don't smoke it. Um, all I did was actually lift the handle and I lifted the whole hive up a couple of inches and that told me quite a bit of information about how much honey stores they have. So it was a substantial weight. And so the heavier they are, the more honey they have. The honey is their food. Mm -hmm. So I know it's well provisioned and it is most likely healthy. At yep. what point do you go in and, and extract the honey? Uh, usually we harvest the honey sometime, usually during spring quarter. So it would be typically in May, end of May. And before we do that, we would actually add a third story to this. So they would make even more honey up above what they have now. That way we have some honey that's left with the hive and they'll produce uh, even more surplus that we can harvest. Right, so you're not cleaning them out. No, yeah, they typically require at any given time upwards of 30 pounds of honey to be left with them at all times in order to stay healthy. In addition to teaching students at Cal Poly, Rose owns a local bee business. He raises bees on the Central Coast and rents the hives to farmers around the state. Well, we trucked the bees to Fresno last night. Do you spend a lot of time over there with the bees? A little bit. At this time of year, um, the almond crop, mm -hmm. those all bloom at about the same time. So, so I was there last night and they were just starting to open. They'll bloom for about four to five weeks. So we truck a lot of the hives over there, drop them off in the orchards. The farmer pays to rent the hive. And that's part of, um, for my business, that's part of our springtime revenue to get the year started is renting out the honeybee hives to the almond farmers. Do you place them in their orchards or you just deliver them and they know what to do with them? Um, typically the farmers are not beekeepers. So part of the price is for the beekeeper to do everything. And that's how I would want it anyway, because I don't trust somebody else with my beehives. They're like my pets. They're too important to me. Mm -hmm. So I drop them off. They tell me where to put them. Uh, we typically put sets of 16 hives every several hundred yards. So we sprinkle them throughout the orchard. And then I'll go there at least one or two times to check on them to make sure everything is okay. And then it will be time to bring them back home. At the end of our conversation, we walked back to the bee lab. I asked Jeremy about the threats facing honeybees. 2005 is when I started my business, and that was a 
very tough time. Uh, there was something called colony collapse disorder, which was decimating the honeybee colonies. Researchers say a combination of factors, including diseases, pesticides, and malnutrition, likely contributed to the loss of so many hives. Rose says the situation has improved, and fewer hives are now lost to colony collapse disorder, but it's never far from his mind. When I asked him about his outlook for this season, he was optimistic. Um, my outlook varies from year to year. Last year, I was very downcast because it was a drought. This year, we've had some of the best rain that we've had since 2019, and things are looking really good. We've got green grass, we've got flowers starting to bloom. That was beekeeper Jeremy Rose, and I'm Beth Thornton for Issues and Ideas. This is KCBX Public Radio. You're listening to Issues and Ideas. Up next, the nonprofit story with Dr. Consuelo Mukes. Today I have with us Dr. Cornell Morton. He is the president and chair of the board of directors of the Diversity Coalition of San Luis Obispo County. He is also formerly Cal Poly Vice President for Student Affairs Emeritus. Dr. Morton, thank you and welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I wanted to just mention just a couple of things about my own uh, history in San Luis Obispo. Retired from Cal Poly, Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, in 2015 after serving as vice president Mm -hmm. for student affairs. Actually relocated to the Central Coast out of Ohio to be closer to our first grandchild. Oh, And any grandparents (laughs) out there know that... they're very likely not going to relocate to you. You'll probably have to relocate to them. That's right. So that's the short of that uh, <laughs> transition. But it was a mm-hmm. great experience working with mm-hmm. students and coming out of a career in public education where mm-hmm. I began my career as a middle school teacher mm-hmm. and then worked on college campuses uh, for the next 30-plus years. We live here in San Luis Obispo and are engaged with our church, the United Methodist Church on Frederick, Mm -hmm. as well as the Martin Luther King Scholarship Committee, the Lifelong Learners of the Central Coast. Mm -hmm. And uh, for a good number of years, I served on the community board with French Hospital. You just jumped right in with two feet and helped out in this county. Mm. And I know we're better for it. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you today about the Diversity Coalition of San Luis Obispo County. And your mission, (laughs) I see, is to build and sustain a coalition that seeks a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive community through advocacy and education. Um, Doctor, tell us a little bit about the coalition. Coalition has been around for 10 plus years. In fact, just last year we celebrated our 10th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the coalition began out of a very sad and tragic episode involving a hate crime down in Aurora Grande, where an African American family found on one evening a cross burning in their yard. and. This, of course, got lots of attention across the county. A number of people came together, private citizens, government officials, obviously law enforcement and others to support that family. The short of it is the folks who came together, many of them decided to continue their work in the name of social justice. And as they coalesced around this family for support, they recognized the need for other efforts in the county. And so the coalition essentially grew to be a nonprofit with Mm -hmm. that initial group of people who came together to support the family. For the last 10 plus years, uh, we've been engaged 
in all sorts of efforts, including, but probably most importantly, education, K through 12 education, working with local schools. Mm -hmm. We've also done a series we titled Fostering Understanding in Our Community. Mm -hmm. uh, we're located at diversityslow.org uh, for our website. And we have been collaborating with a number of other nonprofits to provide DEI, diversity, equity, inclusivity programs and training for local communities and individuals. Let's break that down a little bit, uh, particularly after such a heinous event. Mm -hmm. Was it found that people here maybe didn't understand, first of all, why it could happen in their county, or did it not seem to be as serious as it was? You know, I think once people understood, especially those in positions to make change, understood the seriousness uh, around this, this is a situation that no community wants to experience it. As you know, it mm. transmits very negative perceptions about the community. It undermines attempts to make this community one where everyone feels safe. Underline that word safe because that's essential for any community that prospers and wants to add to its diversity. And so a number of people were surprised. A number of people were brought to some better understanding, uh, quite frankly, about the challenges that we have of my experience suggests can happen almost anywhere. But yeah, I think that was a big issue. And then the second issue was, how do we make certain this is addressed in a way that makes for sustained change, makes mm -hmm. for sustained effort, just not a one-off situation where you surround yourself with people who are like-minded, you support the family and go away. So it's really a testament to those who were instrumental in beginning this organization that people stay together. And since then, I think a lot of folks have had their eyes opened with regard to issues that we need to address here. And it's very apropos to talk about this now because this is Black History Month. So what do you think um, is making things better now because of the Diversity Coalition? Well, I would start with our education agenda. No matter where you situate yourself in all of this, if you are in a community where diversity exists, and it exists in all of our communities, whether it's intellectual diversity, racial, gender diversity, you'll find diversity. But what makes this so important now is that we have in our democracy, our small d democracy, an opportunity as the demographics change, as people become more urbanized, quite frankly, as our educational systems are addressed, as our politics are addressed, the arguments on every side and all sides tend to lift up the problems and the issues. But what I'd like to make certain people understand, of course, is that there's been a lot of progress as well. There have been a lot of things happening that we can take some pride in, which is not to say we're there. We're hardly there. But the coalition is interested in starting first with education. I can't tell you how many people in my age group and others who will explain that for the first time they're learning about mm. the experiences of Asian American Pacific Islanders in Slow County. They're learning more about LGBTQ issues in Slow County. They're learning more about the African American experience. The African American soldier was here. High Street Deli was 
a black-owned business at one time. There are so many things that are really important for people to be made aware of that the coalition is attempting to bring forward. It's really an ongoing effort, and I'm accustomed to saying one's history, a people's history, is its foundation, Mm -hmm. its foundation, its foundation for understanding who they are, uh, their foundation for understanding their identity, understanding the needs of the community, the history of those who've come before them. And so Black History Month is another opportunity, but again, as all of us understand, and I know you as well, black history is American history. That's right. Asian American history is American history. Indigenous mm-hmm. people's history is American history. Right. And so we perhaps do ourselves a disservice by sometimes separating out these months as if we should only celebrate those experiences during 28 days in February, when in fact so many things have been made possible by the diversity. You know, we're accustomed to saying diversity is our our strength. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's important for us to face those histories. That's right. We have tragic histories in our country, in this part of the world. And lastly, you know, going back to history, when we explain the conditions that various communities, underserved communities, marginalized communities, oppressed communities experience, these are grounded in our history. Uh, redlining, uh, housing discrimination is grounded in our history of discrimination. Absolutely. Uh, communities that are still struggling to educate their kids and communities that are struggling to get adequate medical care. COVID lifted up so much of that tragic history around medical care mm-hmm. in the black and brown community especially. So history is so important for understanding why we see what we see today in 2023, immigration policy and our country's relationship with Mexico, Mm -hmm. with Latin America generally, with the Philippines, with so many communities that make for the larger, if you will, United States or America. You know, the territories, whether it's the Virgin Islands or others. Mm -hmm. So our history as a empire, quite frankly, tied back to these territories, tied back to Mexico. Mm -hmm. And when we study the history of Mexico and this country's relationship with it, perhaps we better understand why we have immigration problems today and why folks are on the border from Venezuela and other parts of the, again, Latin countries. And also learning through our history why we are a great country because That's right. of the people who are here and the diversity That's of the right. people who are here. That's right. And if you are just joining us, this is The Nonprofit Story. I'm Dr. Consuelo Mukes, your host. I'm speaking with Dr. Cornell Morton. He is the president and chair of the Diversity Coalition, San Luis Obispo County. Uh, doctor, so what is the Diversity Coalition doing to bring attention to these issues because it's not easy for people to face these facts many times. And as you're saying, there's a lot of fear connected with it as to positioning in society. How is the coalition able to work with some of this? Well, you know, again, I start with education, right? Mm -hmm. I go back to making the programs and resources that are available to us uh, available to others. And so we have uh, individuals who are um, Holocaust survivors speaking on the Holocaust, sharing those experiences, making certain people understand that that 
period of our history as a world was and it still remains problematic. We want to be sure that we reach out to underserved communities. So we're working now to provide climate justice programs through a grant we received, $100,000 grant that will help us to educate underserved, marginalized communities on solar, solar energy, or issues around efficiencies, ecology. These communities have been left out, and these communities are not as well informed. So we have to do that, and that helps. Mm -hmm. The other piece that helps enormously, of course, is to reach young people when they're very young to make certain that you bring people before them, as we do with our speakers. They all visit local middle schools and high schools before they present their evening program. And so when they come to San Luis Obispo to speak on behalf of the Diversity Coalition, we get them out to the middle schools. Mm -hmm. We get them out to the high schools. And the students are just mesmerized. They are paying attention. They're just enthralled Mm -hmm. by some of the people who are sharing with them uh, their experiences and what it means to be who they are, uh, whether they're a Holocaust survivor, whether they're one of the lost boys from Sudan, uh, whether they're an Mm African-American woman who talks about her experiences in Hollywood as a producer, as a director, and the struggles there. Some of these young folks want to aspire to those kinds of careers. Uh, We are trying to do our best to make certain uh, that the kid who's sitting there and listening understands, especially if they look around and don't see a whole lot of people who look like them, Mm -hmm. that these are role models potentially. These are people who Mm -hmm. say to them non-verbally, I did this, you can do this too. Uh, So those kinds of things are important. And then lastly, again, uh, collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. Mm -hmm. None of this is done single-handedly. We would not be uh, as effective as we've been if we did not work with others and take a back seat sometimes, obviously, to those who want to push leadership in ways that we can join and then vice versa, those who get on board with us when we're in the leadership role. Mm -hmm. There's hope in the youth, I believe. There's a lot of hope Mm -hmm. in the youth. We say that, as you know, with Mm -hmm. each generation. Yes. And Mm -hmm. we saw Mm -hmm. real positive signs of this just after George Floyd was murdered. Mm -hmm. And even uh, this young man, Tyree Nichols, you know, young people Mm -hmm. taking to the streets and saying, this is not acceptable. This is not Mm -hmm. something that represents me or the country that I want to be a part of. And these were young people largely who were white. Uh, There were a good number of obviously people of color, African-Americans, brown folk and others. But across that community of young people, you saw, you know, what Jesse Jackson calls a rainbow Mm -hmm. of of complexions. And of course, there were folks out there as old as me, too, uh, people who have been around for a while and um, have been a part of some of this in past years. Yes. And I think one good thing that came out of us being sheltered during COVID was that people had the opportunity to unfortunately see the George Floyd incident because these incidences have been going on for so many decades. And it was like shouting into uh, the wind about this. But then to actually see this happen and say, yes, this has to stop and to see how many of these cases haven't even been addressed particularly with African-American women or other women of different um, ethnicities and other situations, it, it did. that was a positive thing that people could see it 
and come together and hopefully begin to give us some language where we can all understand these things now. So if people want to get involved with the work of the coalition or to hear more about these programs that you have available, how can they do that? Well, the Diversity Coalition website, diversityslow.org, and we're developing a volunteers program. And so we're looking for volunteers. You simply need to contact us through the website. We're also looking, quite frankly, for treasurer. We have... uh, a small board comparatively. There are about eight or nine of us uh, who represent Mm -hmm. the board, and we each have, of course, a role to play. We lost our treasurer, very, very talented person, outstanding individual, who simply wanted to spend a little more time with her kids and her family and her husband, and so uh, she has left us, but uh, we're looking for treasurer. We also have opportunities during our programs Mm -hmm. for people to help us present those programs. So we're looking for speakers. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're looking for individuals who can provide space for our programs, whether it's North or South County. And then, uh, of course, we are accepting donations, obviously, and looking for sponsorship. We have several sponsors, large and small, uh, individuals and organizations. Uh, So we are just opening our arms to folks who want to get involved. Dr. Morton, thank you so much for coming and spending time with us today. I wish we had more time. Maybe we'll have to have you back and hear more about what's going on. Well, doctor, thank you as well. (laughs) You're welcome. And this has been Dr. Cornell Morton. He is the president and chair of the Diversity Coalition of San Luis Obispo County speaking to us today. And I am Dr. Consuelo Mukes, the host of The Nonprofit Story. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangerman, and up next, we're going to take a look at Morro Rock. When Spanish colonizers first saw that 600-foot-tall rock sticking up out of the ocean, they named it Morro, which has a lot of meanings in Spanish. It can mean snout or round hill. But indigenous people of the area called it by other names, Lisamu by the Shumash. In 1889, the Army Corps of Engineers started heavily quarrying moral rock, blasting tons of rock over the course of 80 years. They used it to create breakwaters in Morro Bay and nearby Avila Beach. Blasted pieces of the rock were also used in buildings around San Luis Obispo County and for the road to the rock itself, which used to be an island. But now, some of that quarried rock is returning to its source through the efforts of local tribes. KCBX's Benjamin Perper takes us to Reunite the Rock. It's a ceremony of healing and inclusion at the base of Morro Rock. It's a hot morning at the base of Morro Rock. The rock itself is so tall that its peak is often shrouded in fog, even when the land and sea below aren't. But not today. And that's for the best, because it gives me a clear view of the wooden boats headed to shore. They're called tamals, traditional wooden canoes used by indigenous peoples up and down the California coast. They're being rowed by Shumash men, some wearing clothes and accessories from their tribal heritage. Women from the tribe are on the shore to greet the rowers as they land. They break out into cheers, and so does everyone else gathered here. Even someone's dog picks up on the joy. The boats are hoisted on shore. It's a group effort. The boats have special cargo, pieces of Morro Rock itself, 
long since quarried and used to build the nearby breakwater at Port San Luis. The stones are small compared to the rock itself and light enough to be carried. And that's the plan here, carrying the rocks back to where they came from more than a century ago, to Lisamu, the Shumash name for Moro Rock. Michael Kisarati with the Coastal Band of Shumash lays it out. When we planned this, we thought, wouldn't it be great if instead of some one person taking all those rocks, which is a lot of rocks, uh, what if we uh, bring all, all of us together and form a human chain from the tamales and bring them up from the beach and put them back on Lisamu together? So how do you like that? That sound like a good idea? Over 100 people line up from the shore to the base of Moro Rock. It's not just Shumash members, it's onlookers, tourists, Moro Bay residents, the dog. Even I'm tempted to put my audio gear down and join. I don't, but it takes some self-control. The joy is infectious. <laughs> Tribal members on the beach pass the rock fragments from hand to hand up to the rock. They're carefully placed in a small clearing past the do not enter or climb sign, which normally would stop people like me from intruding on sensitive shrubbery, bird habitat, and of course, sacred rock. But today, for the first time, I'm allowed to pass that sign and get face to face with the ancient volcanic rock. I can't help but put my hand on it. I might not get that chance again. Uh, we're gonna start gathering around the fire here. When the rocks from the tamales are reunited with Lisamu, it's time for a ceremony. We have a special blessing. We have our fire here. Tribal members place tobacco and sage onto a small fire while the rest of us gather in a circle around them. Violet Sage Walker pulls out necklaces from a box draped in colorful fabric. They're made of soapstone in the shape of Moro rock. A rock for a rock. And this is a rock effigy of Moro rock, Isamio. And it represents our rock and our ocean and our people and our food and our energy and our love. Let's get you all wearing one right now. Violet is the chairwoman of the Northern Chumash Tribal Council, which organized this gathering to bring the various Chumash tribes together. Although only a few rocks recovered from the breakwater made it back to their original home, it was symbolic of a longer process of healing and reconciliation. It started in 2017, when the Army Corps of Engineers began looking at repairing the Port San Luis breakwater. They approached Violet's father, Fred Collins, a well-known local leader who chaired the council before her. My dad had told me about seven years ago that the Army Corps of Engineers reached out to him and asked him, you know, what to do with Morrow Rock. The rock that was at the breakwater in Avila is being repaired, and it's all Morrow Rock. Her dad said, I want it back, literally. He wanted them to be put back together. <laughs> I, I imagine him thinking that they're going to, like, you know, glue the rocks back together. <laughs> Glue or not, the Army Corps soon decided that putting the rock back together wasn't actually possible. They believed the parts of moral rock used in the breakwater couldn't be removed until 2021, when they found a way to separate some of the smaller rocks. By that point, Violet's father had passed away and wasn't around to jump on the opportunity. But she was. Seven years later, like two days before his memorial, they called me and asked me if we still wanted the rocks. And I said, absolutely. The Army Corps cooperated with the Shumash tribes to plan the reunion, and it finally began last year. Violet describes Reunite the Rock as spectacular, seeing everyone participate in one big community gathering. She says her late father was watching. And my dad was just laughing at us. He's like, see, you guys had to move all these rocks now. <laughs> 
As joyous as the event was, she says there was plenty of pain along with it. Despite the Army Corps' gesture, Lisa Mu will never be what it was. She says it's a constant reminder of a violent history. You know, it's very symbolic because Morrill Rock was blasted right about the same time that California had issued a bounty on Native people. And almost a million Native people in California were killed during the 1880s. And the governor of California had paid like 25 cents a head for Native people. And that's, you know, state-sanctioned execution of our people. It's an ugly history, and one that won't be washed clean by a ceremony. But Violet says she has reason to be hopeful, because the Chumash and other indigenous tribes now have a seat at the table when decisions are made. Not just on this, but also massive renewable energy and conservation projects coming to the central coast, like offshore wind and a new marine sanctuary. Still, it's complicated. You know, it's a double-edged sword. It's like bittersweet. These people, my ancestors, people that have suffered so much, weren't here to see things like this happen. But that it hopefully it'll be easier on the next generation that they won't have to go through some of the things that we've gone through. Thinking back on that ceremony, the thing that stuck with me the most was the human chain and Michael Kisarati's invitation for everyone, not just the Shumash, to join in. I think it's totally appropriate because uh, nothing good happens without community. Nothing really good happens without teamwork and without inclusiveness. Reunite the Rock was an acknowledgement of the racist and violent history built into the foundation of this area. Quite literally, with pieces of the sacred rock used to construct our roads, our buildings, and our breakwater. Returning those few small rocks now may be symbolic, but it's also a small step towards healing. And they'll be there, I think, for a long, long time. And whenever you go by there in the future, you come back to visit Lisa Mu, you can kind of glance over there. And if you're so inclined, you can say a little prayer or a little word you know, and remember this day. For KCBX News, I'm Benjamin Perper. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Up next, Playing with Food. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian Dullinger, and I'm Playing with Food. Produce boxes are all the rage. It's not just the convenience of getting a box of fresh vegetables and fruits delivered to your door on a weekly, bi-weekly, or monthly basis. It's the high quality of produce grown here right in California that we love. And there's the added benefit of not having to fight the crowds at the farmer's markets. But why should we pay so much more to get produce that's simply just the gleanings from mass-farmed fruits and veg destined for the supermarket shelves? Well, the Playing With Food team went directly to the farm and found out that this is not the model for your local produce. My name is Andrea Chavez, and I am the creator and manager of the Tally Farms Box Program. We are a direct-to-consumer produce box program. So we pack a variety of fruits and vegetables every week and get them directly to consumers. Tally Farms has been farming since 1948, so over 70 years. All of the main farms product is shipped wholesale all throughout North America. But the direct-to-consumer box program, I started it over 10 years ago. So it's a little different revenue stream. We're selling directly to consumers at $25 to $35 a box. 
whereas the main farm is shipping whole pallets of produce to Albertsons or Vons or wholesalers throughout North America. So it's a very different way to grow, pack, and sell produce. Sounds very hands-on rather than mechanized like you would on the main farm. It's a lot easier to grow 15 acres of, say, cilantro and harvest and pack that. It's a lot more economical. You can really get into the groove. Everybody's packing the same item throughout the day, pre-cool the produce, the whole pallets. Whereas for our box program, we're farming maybe an acre of carrots. I tell my production manager that I want like two weeks of carrots and then we don't want carrots for two weeks. And then we want two weeks of carrots and then we don't want carrots for two weeks. And so he has to juggle these smaller lots. We have smaller size equipment. We're not as efficient as farming like 15 acres or 30 acres of the same crop. Because my crew, like today, they harvested leeks, lettuce, our little gem lettuce, carrots and radishes and of course they're jumping from one crop to the next and some of those items are bunched and some of them are not the workers are just not quite as efficient as when you're growing larger quantities of produce it sounds like you're growing your own crops for this program my thought of csa boxes was that it was overspill or wastage from the main crops that you just threw in a box and charged more for it's not that (laughs) No, not at all. We don't grow everything in the box because we're not good at growing strawberries or sweet potatoes. We want to grow what we're good at growing and also items that I can't buy anywhere else from another California farm. All of the produce in our boxes is California grown. Our belief is to support all California farmers as much as we can and California farm workers. That's our motto is support California farmers. So we grow about 40 different crops throughout the whole year. Some we can grow year round like carrots. And then many of the crops are very seasonal, such as our raspberries or blackberries or artichokes. Uh, Of course, our summer squashes, zucchini is very seasonal. Green beans are seasonal. So those items are not grown here in California in the wintertime. So we won't have those things in our boxes in the wintertime. It's very, very seasonal box, but yet we can pick from all sorts of California growers. It's worth it to get out and meet growers and see what they have and taste. I do spend a lot of time visiting growers and really getting to know the salesmen. It takes trust with the salesmen that sell for the growers I buy for. And when I tell them they want number one quality and we really want this variety, And I have to trust him that that's what he'll make sure gets loaded on our truck. We have one big apple grower left in California, and I support him as much as I can because I don't want to lose our big California apple grower. It's Cuyama Orchards down in Cuyama. So most of the apples come out of Oregon and Washington, and they're stored all through the year. So if you're eating a Washington apple in August, it's almost a year old. Wow. We do buy from all different kinds of farms, small and large. We purchased this year from a small garlic grower up in Paso Robos. We buy from Gopher Glen apples up in Sea Canyon, Okui berries here in Grover Beach. We supported a pear grower out of Sea Canyon that had some unique pears last year. 
People come to me all the time and say, well, I've got this crop. I don't, don't have anywhere to go with it. I don't do farmer's markets. And the first thing I ask them is, well, what kind of food safety program do you have? So they really need to have a food safety program. If so, then I'll look at their crop. I'll go out and see what they're doing. We try and support as many small farms as we can. We really do. But it does take us longer to sort and pack some of those items. The garlic came in in totes and sacks. Then we had to bag them up into two or three per bag for box. And then there's always what we call shrink produce that's not good enough to be put in the boxes. And even they're shrinking the big growers. You know, not every apple in the box is perfect. Of course, that's what we donate to the food bank. And then we also take home a lot of that produce. So you say you've outgrown some of these farmers. You have too many boxes. How many boxes do you have? We do about 3,500 boxes a week. And we've got about 8,000 subscribers because not everybody gets a box every week. Some are monthly, some are bi-weekly, and then some are weekly. We have about 70 pickup locations between Paso and Goleta. We drop boxes in Bakersfield now. And we also have a route that goes all the way up to Mammoth and Bishop. We have 200 customers up there. It's kind of a food desert. We keep growing geographically. We have like five delivery vehicles now. Soon to have another van for local home delivery. So we drop most of our boxes at pickup locations and we partner with companies and then we have routes that our trucks drop the boxes at. And that really helps keep the price of our boxes down. Um, Home delivery costs more and then we ship our boxes overnight. Is there a field that we could go see what's happening? I know we're harvesting leeks and carrots, radishes, and lettuce. Great, let's go. And off we went out into the fields. You're listening to KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, discovering how CSA boxes, or community-supported agriculture boxes, or more commonly known as produce boxes, are put together. Andrea Chavez of the Tally Farms Box just explained the program and now is taking me out into the fields. She started by expressing some of the challenges, particularly with the deluge of rain that hit California in December 2022 and January 2023. The hardest part is getting the land ready to plant. And we can't get the tractors into the field if it's super muddy. Out here in the Rio Grande Valley, we have very heavy soil. It's an adobe type soil. So it takes longer to dry out than if we were, say, in Santa Maria where it's sandier. We have some rows that are prepared and ready to plant, but certainly not enough, especially over in the other field in Biddle 2. We've been waiting to get into that field since early December because of all the rain we've had. This is all of our red little gem out there. It's beautiful. And you can see there's different stages. We need about 12,000 heads of lettuce a week. And so he'll plant almost every week so that we have lettuce every week. Those are leeks right there. Should we go have a look at yeah, them? Yeah, let's look. Let's... We've harvested some on that side. We're growing some spring onions. They have a big bulb on the end. And we really like those. They're much better than green onions that are very thin because you get a lot more onion to the spring onions. They've got a ways to go. The purple radishes, we like to grow things that are a little bit different. And the purple radishes are unique. They're not an exciting item. People don't customize and add radishes to their box. The only person I know that is so crazy about radishes is my masseuse. (laughs) And he's like, oh, bring me some radishes. But you can see right next to the leeks, there's the carrots right there. 
of those carrots have already been harvested, it looks like. You have to dig the carrots up. You can't just pull them out of the ground, otherwise you'll pull the tops off. When we have school kids out here, I try and catch the carrot harvest. I get them out there trying to pull a carrot out. They find that they can't do it, and then we show them with the tractor. If you dig underneath, then they'll come up, and then you can bunch them. So what were these? On the right? Yeah. Those were the ones left behind. Oh, the ones left behind. Yeah, see okay. the little ones. They're just little teeny. They're just little teeny ones. Yeah, so they don't get to get go in the box. I guess not. They just have well, to stay here and nurture the, the soil. <laughs> That's right. If there's something left in the field, it gets turned back into the soil. That's the good part. If there's something that is not large enough or big enough or good enough to put in the boxes, then it's all tilled back into the soil. Does that cause any problems with them rooting and coming up into a different crop? Yeah, sometimes you'll see something coming up and it's like, oh yeah, I guess we grew romaine here last year and look, it's coming up, you know. So yeah, sometimes we'll get that, but usually not to the extent that it's a problem. See, they're harvesting leeks over there. Can you oh. see them? Is it dry enough to walk down walk there as down. we talk? Yeah, let's walk down. Okay. Are most of the crops that are done here harvested by hand, or do you have some crops that are machine uh, well, harvestable? No, everything is harvested by hand, although we may use platforms or trailers to help us harvest. We are always looking at new equipment. The farm show in Tulare is coming in a couple of weeks, and every year we go out there and look and see what we can find some new kind of equipment that will help us harvest more efficiently and at less cost. Currently, we harvest everything by hand. That's quite the endeavor, particularly in today's times, if all of your farming is harvested by hand. Is it simply the types of crops or the size of your acreage or combination? I think it's a kind of crops. A lot of the produce that is harvested for fresh consumption is harvested by hand. Crops that are harvested for canning or frozen, a lot of those crops will be harvested by machinery because if you're going to freeze something or you're going to put it in a tomato sauce, you really don't care what the product looks like. With fresh, you know, we're very concerned about damage to the product, keeping it looking and being as healthy as it can be. These are leeks. These are leeks. Harvesting leeks by hand. You can see how wet the soil is. It's not really muddy. You sure sink. Yeah. Hola! So some of these are leaving behind are too small. They may come back in later and pick the smaller ones and bunch more in a bunch. It looks like to me that they're being bunched and bundled and tied, ready to go into the CSA well, box. All of the produce in our boxes, whether we grow it or whether I buy it from another farm, it's pre-cooled. When produce comes in out of the field, there's a lot of heat in the product. Here at Tally, we have four different ways to pre-cool produce, depending on what the produce item is. We use the hydrovac, and it'll go through that, and there's water involved, and then the water's kind of sucked out, and then it goes into a cooler. And then it's cold until we pack it. We pack inside of a cooler for our boxes. We deliver those in a refrigerated truck to pick up locations. You get a longer shelf life. So here you are, it's the first week of January. You're like, oh, we got through the Christmas rain. We're gonna be okay. We're getting our boxes ready. And then this week of rain comes and you've got a crop wiped out. How do you fill your orders? Well, I have to look for other products. Every week it's a game with me. Like, okay, what are we gonna put in the box? What do we have? The first thing I do is talk to my production manager. What do you have available for next week? and then I'll start looking and we always need two to three kinds of fruit 
two to three kinds of dinner vegetables like a broccoli or cauliflower and then we like to have some salad items. I always look for that grouping. If I'm missing dinner vegetables then I'll go and search out broccoli or cauliflower or Brussels sprouts which this time of year is really about all that's available locally for dinner vegetables. Now I was looking back at last year we had local snap peas last year. Usually they come on more, you know, late spring and through the summer and fall. But we had them last year and I called the grower who grew them. And any snap peas right now and just nothing. No local snap peas. A lot of the snap peas are coming out of Guatemala right this time of year. So February 19th, we're supposed to get more rain. Rain. <laughs> There's only so much planning you can do. You can say, well, in the spring, we're going to have this. But you may not know exactly which week it's ready and you can't buy ahead of time i mean apple store for a while the vegetables you can't say well gosh i'm gonna load cauliflower now and use it in three weeks doesn't work that way with fresh produce you have to pivot and be flexible and you know sometimes even produce will come in and we're not happy with the quality and then again it's like okay we wanted to put in broccoli but we're gonna to have to find something else. And so then you juggle and that's the produce business. Everything happens kind of at the last minute with fresh vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times I don't have the boxes totally figured out until usually on a Thursday before the next week's box. It's all kind of at the last minute. And that's the way it's been. I've been in the produce business over 40 years. Pricing can change from six in the morning to 10 in the morning on different products. So you just, you have to be used to that. You're listening to KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian at the Tally Farms, experiencing the ins and outs of produce boxes. I just walked a leek field with Andrea Chavez, and now it's time to see how the produce boxes get assembled. Jose Chires, and I'm a warehouse manager at Tally Farms. So right now we're packaging boxes that are either shipped out today, shipped out for tomorrow. We're going to Bishop, one of the drivers, up in the snow. So some of the boxes of produce we grow here, like the cilantro, you'll see that on that table going into the boxes. The lettuce, same thing, grown here. You see that grape tomato over there? I think that's from somewhere in the valley. Comes in, Mari package, so we just gotta throw it in the box. How many boxes are you doing today and how long will it take? Today, Thursday, we're doing 579 boxes. I think it will be done by around one, about six hours. Where do they go from here? One of the guys, he's gonna roll it over here to the Napa cooler to where it's a little bit colder so they can maintain the freshness. And then we're gonna stack it by route. So there's gonna be a route one, route two, and a route three for Thursday. The local drive, we'll just stack them wherever we see space. Let's continue over here. So this cooler is 30, 35 degrees, 32 degrees, depending what the dog has in here. Right now they have Napa, so it's around 32. After that, the drivers, here's one of the drivers right now. That guy. So after that, the drivers will park their trucks right here and then we'll just load them up with the forklift. And they go to wherever they need to go. Yeah, yeah, they go to their destination. And the boxes were on their way. Andrea and her team don't just leave it up to the recipient to figure out what to do with the box of produce once it arrives. They make sure there is a little added value. We work with a lot of recipes. Cindy and I do a lot of cooking. We try recipes. I'm loading some purple sweet potatoes this week. And so we needed some good recipes for purple sweet potatoes. So we'll find the recipes, we'll go home and make different dishes, and the ones we like, we'll put them on our website and put the recipe in the boxes. 
I know people are busy. The best thing to do is to have easy recipes. You know, when you're making dinner, you may have your chicken, you've got a salad, you know, you need a dinner vegetable. If we have a really easy broccoli recipe and you've got it stored in the refrigerator, you just grab your broccoli, come out and make your quick and easy broccoli, and then you've got a well-rounded dinner. That's the idea is to have things that are easy to make, not complicated and time consuming. And we wanna have ingredients that people have on hand, not anything out of the ordinary that they may not have or they have to go buy. We have a section on our Saturday email that goes out to our members where they can click and see what recipes we're gonna have. This is the week before Super Bowl weekend. And so it's our Super Bowl box where we have our Napa cabbage that the main farm grows and our cilantro that the main farm grows. There's a Chinese Napa salad with Thai peanut dressing. That is so good. And that is a crowd pleaser for any party. Recipes are so important. And we've really developed our website with lots of different recipes on there. So it's your Super Bowl box. Yes. Do you have avocados in it? No, avocados right now are all out of Mexico. I took a box home with me. I tried the Thai peanut Napa slaw salad. It was delicious and lasted for days. I also made the garlicky roasted broccoli recipe, also a very good and quick weeknight side dish. For me, a produce box wouldn't be about convenience. It would be about freshness. Andrea and I stood next to my car and talked about the importance of healthy eating. We all know that some of our supermarket produce doesn't contain the level of health benefits that it should because of what is done to it for shelf life. And I fully admit that the supermarket is where most of my produce comes from, but I might try a produce box to steer myself away from overtreated produce. You know what comes shortly after the Super Bowl? Lent, the six weeks of the Christian calendar during which we focus on penitence, almsgiving, and prayer with the tradition of giving up something. Perhaps I'll give up supermarket produce and enjoy the produce that is right on my front step. Literally. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, and I'm playing with food. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.